Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are again in the book of Daniel, and here the guys will be wrapping up their thoughts on Daniel chapter 10. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes, specifically our YouTube channel. We'd love for you to be a subscriber over there. Right now, we are in the midst of an ongoing series on the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart, and we will be starting a new video series here soon. The ones in the past are uh, How to Read the Bible, Liturgy, and Work, and we also just recently did a series on the Tabernacle with Alistair Roberts. We want to thank you so much for listening this week, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 10. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is handling the technical side of things, uh, keeping the recording going, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so it can be uh, out to you, our audience. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening to the Theopolis Podcast. We appreciate uh, your interest in what we're doing and uh, appreciate your support. Uh, thank you for the Many of those of you who support us uh, financially, that's a great blessing to us and is a sign that uh, we are uh, we're, uh, filling a need and we, we, we appreciate that, uh, that vote of confidence. But we're in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Daniel. Uh, we've gotten to Daniel 10 and the last episode we talked about roughly the first half of Daniel 10. Um, and this time we're going to talk about the second half of Daniel 10. Uh, Daniel 10 is part of the the final vision of Daniel, Uh, the last several chapters of Daniel from chapters 7 through 12 record visions that Daniel himself sees uh, and records and delivers to uh, his readers. Uh, Chapter 7 and 8 are visions that take place during the Babylonian era, uh, and uh, uh, they're visions that uh, have to do with the future of Israel. Chapters uh, 10 through, uh, rather 9 through 12 are taking place during the Persian period, uh, and particularly in chapter 11, which is the big part of this final vision, is looking ahead to the uh, history of Israel in relation to the, uh, in, in the aftermath of the conquests of Alexander and in relation to the Greek, uh, the Greek powers that Alexander leaves in his wake after his conquest and his early death. Uh, so chapter 10 is the beginning of that last three chapter vision. And it's, uh, as we talked about last time, it's a is kind of a lengthy introduction to a vision. We've Daniel has gone through things like that, like this previously, but this is the most extensive kind of encounter with uh, angelic beings. It's the most extensive description of Daniel's own experience in in those encounters, and it kind of resembles some of the prophetic book prophetic call scenes that we have in the other prophets. Uh, it has some resemblances to the to the scene at the beginning of uh, Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is beside. Uh, the Kibar, and he sees the glory of the Lord come, and he's called and, and, and appointed to be a prophet. Uh, Daniel's beside a river, and he sees the, this glorious figure above the river, and um, that is commissioned to record and to seal up this prophecy that's going to be given primarily in chapter 11. Um, there's a resemblance to uh, what Isaiah experiences in Isaiah 6, when he's in the presence of the glory of the Lord and sees all these Seraphim and the seraphim touches a coal to his mouth and purifies his lips so that he can be a speaker of truth among the people of unclean lips. Uh, so Daniel is going through a similar kind of experience and being 
he's being, uh, uh, first of all, he's being shattered and then he's being rebuilt. He's kind of being reborn so that he can stand before the Lord. There's a, a, an emphasis on his falling and standing. When the angel first speaks to him, uh, he collapses to the ground and then gradually moves up so that he's standing. Uh, and that movement of falling and standing is going to be something that uh, recurs throughout the vision that's going to come in chapter 11. There are kings that rise, they stand up, and then they fall. The king, Another king stands up and he falls, and so on. And then finally, they're going to be those who are um, with, like Daniel, who fall first and then stand up. There's a kind of death and resurrection pattern that's going to come for Israel. And Daniel is going through that death and resurrection experience uh, before the people will. He's kind of a type for what's going to happen to Israel. Daniel has great conflict at the beginning, and he fasts for three weeks. And you have a similar thing in verse 13 with the struggle with the kingdom of Persia and for 21 days, and then Michael coming to help. Should we regard that as Gabriel? Um, and then in the same way as that occurs, Daniel is helped after his struggle for three weeks or 21 days. Is this the first mention of Michael? Yes. Okay. It just seems somewhat random that out of the blue comes a um, one of his chief princes called Michael, also in verse 21, called your prince or your chief. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering what the background to this is. What's the... Um, how, how does Daniel understand this, or does he already know about Michael? Whether he knows the name, um, he probably doesn't know the name, but presumably be associated with the commander of the army of the Lord in Joshua or the angel that sent before them or the um, angel of the covenant. And then also with the, maybe also with the man of um the one like the Son of Man in chapter 7. Yeah, I think that, uh, that there are precedents for a figure like Michael, but I think that he's not been named before. I mean, the name means who is like God. Some have some recollection that that kind of phrasing is, and, and something's lingering in the back of my head. Somebody's going to have to, somebody else is going to have to tell me where I'm, what I'm thinking of. But that phrasing is used uh, of other figures prior to Daniel, I think. Maybe somebody can help me with that. What phrase in particular, Peter? The, name, the meaning of the name is who is like God. Is that a, is that a phrase that appears prior to Daniel uh, with reference to, to the angel of the Lord or some other, some other figure? Are we all I mean, maybe you have it in a sort of um, <laughs> inversion of some of the evil um, beast-like figures that claim a sort of divine status. I think you see it used in that way in the book of Revelation. So who is like the beast? Um, being opposed to the one, uh, being opposed to Michael. I mean, we, we have, I guess, in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar seeing one who was like a son of the gods. Is, is that what you have in mind? Goodness me, I don't know. I probably was, <laughs> I was probably thinking of the, the Revelation passage that Alistair is citing, which looks like it's a, it is a play on the name Michael, but I, I had a Scratch that. I, I, I can't think of the passage that's lingering in my mind, and it's probably Revelation. He, he's also mentioned in Jude, 
where he fights against the devil and is actually called an archangel. Um, and then, of course, you were thinking of Revelation 12, where he fights against the dragon and throws them out of heaven. Um, so I suppose this is, I mean, this maybe is pretty obvious for us, but maybe a reminder for others that this is uh, the old world where <clears throat> angelic beings seem to have some kind of governance over the nations and over Israel. Um, that, of course, is going to change with the coming of Jesus and his ascension. But all of this interaction between um, Michael and the kings of Persia, or actually Michael was um, not there with this other angelic being who was left with the kings of Persia, verse 13, uh, makes you wonder what exactly is the interface between these angelic beings and these kings uh, or these authorities, these princes, these human authorities. I mean, um, what's, what's the interface? What's going on here? What's the influence? Uh, how are things being uh, guided and directed? Uh, perhaps that can't be answered. Maybe it's just a mystery, uh, something uh, certainly spiritual in, in ways we can't understand it. But it is fascinating to um, to think about that. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we've got perhaps a glimpse of it in terms of Nebuchadnezzar's life and his interaction with that watcher. So maybe it's that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I was thinking. Uh, uh, dreams, uh, visions that kings have. Nebuchadnezzar has a couple of uh, encounters, uh, not necessarily with a figure like that, like an angel, but... Uh, um, an angel could inspire dreams. I think of Ahasuerus in the book of Esther also. He's, he's sleepless and he reads the books at night. So there's a, a perhaps some kind of angelic intervention that uh, prevents him from sleeping. I think, too, that uh, surely one of the ways that there's an interaction is through human intermediaries. So you have uh, Daniel himself, who is inspired and in, in, in touch with heavenly powers as as. Nebuchadnezzar and others have said earlier in Daniel, uh, he has the spirit of the gods in him. And so when he speaks, uh, there's a, there's a, the, uh, that kind of uh, angelic influence is coming through that human mediator. I guess we should ask the back up and ask the question whether we're all in agreement that uh, what's the different uh, characters here are angelic figures. I think that there's no doubt that the figure that uh, Daniel first sees over the Tigris who's described in these um, in, in verse six, that that's some kind of angelic figure, the angel of the Lord or some similar personage. Um, and the one who's talking to him, uh, uh, whether that's the same one who's above the Tigris or another, another angelic figure who's, uh, who's speaking directly to him. Those are, uh, those are spiritual beings, but are we agreed that like the prince of the kingdom of Persia uh, in verse 13 is an angelic figure? Uh, and later on, the princes of Persia and Greece in verse 20. Uh, there are commentators who suggest otherwise. Calvin uh, says that the, it's talking not about, uh, not about angelic figures, but about human kings. Given that you've got phrases like, you know, uh, towards the end of verse 20, the angel is going to go back to fight against the prince of Persia. And when he goes out, behold, the prince of Greece will come feels very hard to relate those just to human figures. So, I mean, it, that, 
they, they feel like angelic figures to me at least. Anybody agree with Calvin's take on the passage? Think that this is talking about uh, Persian, Persian rulers? Well, one argument against that is also at the end of verse 13, uh, this other personage who says, uh, I was left there with the kings of Persia, and then I came to make you understand what is going to happen to your people in the latter days. Uh, that doesn't seem like something a human prince of Persia would say. That seems like um, an angelic messenger and his, uh, his communication to Daniel. So, so are, are we agreed on the basic sequence of events? So, I mean, the way I see it from verse 12 onwards is, is like this, and then you can say if you've got a different view of things. But it feels to me like Daniel prays, God hears his prayer on the first day, verse 12, that he begins to pray and dispatches an angel. Um, that angel is then held up by the prince of Persia and he's embroiled with the kings of Persia in some way. And it feels like the kings of Persia he can deal with, but the prince of Persia, when he's present as well, that's too much for him. So after 21 days of being caught up with that, Michael is dispatched to help him. He deals with the prince of Persia and leaves the first angel just alone with the kings of Persia, who he's able to deal with. And so he does deal with them and then goes and appears to Daniel. Is, is that how you see this sort of panning out that would be my read of it um, i think another factor to bear in mind when considering the character of the prince of the kingdom of persia is that he's set over against michael your prince and so if we understand michael to be an angelic or um divine figure even um we should see the prince of the kingdom of persia as in some sense um, parallel to or um, symmetrical with him. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, I, I, I agree with all that. I, I'm just doing con some consensus building here. Just want to make sure that we all are all in agreement that we're talking about spiritual warfare and angelic warfare. And as far as James's um, sequence of events, that's that does seem to be the. Uh, I I agree that that's the that's the basic sequence of events. One one question I do have. Are you reading this as uh, Daniel encountering two different angelic figures, the one above the one above the river and the other one who's actually communicating with him? Who touches him? Is that the same angel that's above the river or is there a second figure there? I would argue that there are two figures. Um, in the visions to this point, there has been, um, he's seen the one like the Son of Man. He's seen other um, spectacular visions that have left him in shock. And yet there's been an interpreting angel um, along with him. And that interpreting angel is Gabriel. And it seems to me here that that would be the most natural way to take it, that you have the archangel Michael um, over the river, and then you have um, Gabriel, who's the interpreting assisting angel. I mean, I've wondered about, I don't know if this is a, a literary comment or a comment about actually how many figures there are, but often these visions are, are slightly unclear it seems to me and i wonder if there's a hint at the fact that there could be seven angelic figures here so we have the first man the man clothed in linen in verse five and then all the subsequent figures are introduced in kind of 
indirect terms. So you don't get, like in verse 10, his hand, for instance. You just get a hand touched me. And then afterwards in verse 16, you get one in the likeness of the children of men. And again, in verse 18, um, you, you get another indo- uh, indefinite one with the appearance of... So, you know, arguably you've got a man clothed in linen and then three other men mentioned here. And then at the far end of all these visions in chapter 12, you've got finally a definite uh, term, the man clothed in linen, and then he's accompanied by two people. So, you know, arguably you've got a guy in linen and then sort of six other um, figures surrounding it, which sounds very Ezekiel-like, very like Ezekiel 9 with a man in in linen and and his six people with him. And I'm not saying there are necessarily seven characters here, but I just wonder if in literary terms, that's in the backdrop of some of this. Fits too with the various uh, collections of seven angels in the book of Revelation. Uh, So that's definitely worth worth pondering. So this would be uh, an interaction that Daniel has with um, the divine council, if you will. Right, which which fits with what we were saying in the previous episode about Daniel being incorporated in as a priest. He's being and not a priest as a prophet. This is a kind of prophetic call, and uh, as a prophet, he ends up surrounded by uh, angels. Not just not just maybe not just one or two that we're thinking of, but uh, he he's surrounded by a little a little troop of angels that have uh, that have that he's joined and now uh, now he's among them. I mean, certainly there's a thematic link with Ezekiel 9 in that there, the man in linen and his six you know, colleagues or, or, or whatever, that they are wanting to find people who are sighing over the state of Jerusalem and who are grieved at what's going on there. And that's precisely what Daniel's doing in chapter 10. You know, whereas Jerusalem, the people have gone back and have given up the building project. Daniel alone, it seems, is grieved by this and is seeking the Lord with, with fasting. So if these are angelic figures, what do we do with the um, humaniform description that is given, say, in verse 16, one in the likeness of the sons of Adam or the children of man, or in verse 18, one having the appearance of a man touched and strengthened me? I guess uh, one question I would have is, this: does this say something about well, the theology of angels, maybe? Are they, uh, do they have a human form? Or is this, secondly, possibly typological, of course, looking eventually to Jesus and to the incarnation of the Son? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the language is interesting because you have, um, isn't it a demut, which is the um, a word that's used for the image or is it likeness? One of the words in Genesis 1, image or likeness is demut. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's likeness, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, it, I think that's a word that's used here to describe the resemblance. So you have a kind of double, a double mirroring. Um, human beings resemble God, are likenesses to God, and then angels are described here as likenesses to human beings. So you might have some, some kind of, a, a certain kind of hierarchy, I guess. Um, I mean, we, we regularly have angels referred to as men 
don't we? I mean, whether it's in kind of earlier accounts in Genesis or even in after the resurrection in, in the Gospels, we just have angelic figures referred to as men. So that, that, that feels like a um, natural way to refer to them. They're then uh, identified as angels, often with their clothing or, or actions or whiteness and, and that kind of thing. We might also think about the ways that human beings are created in order that one day they will attain to the rule and authority that is currently exercised by angels, will judge angels at the end. And the roles performed by angels at various points seem to be priestly, kingly, and also prophetic. They're ones who um, ordered the heavenly sanctuary as the divine servants. They're those who rule here as princes. Um, and then we also see the ways that they are prophetic messengers and those who speak in the divine council. And human beings, as those created in the image of God, are those to rise up to occupy those roles. And as such, it should not surprise us, I think, that there is some similarity between angels and human beings. I think also, as I suggested in the previous episode, there is underlying here lots of different allusions to a sort of event of creation that Daniel is being lifted up from the ground, from the earth. He's been in a deep sleep. He's having his lips touched so that he'll be able to speak and animate in that sense. He's been given strength again. And in all of these ways, it's as if the Lord is creating this him as a new Adam, blowing the spirit into him so that he might speak with his words, but speak as one who's now been transformed into a full participant in the divine council, along with the angels. And the, the role of the angels there might just reinforce that. Yeah, just one other detail that, uh, that supports that is the position, the position of the uh, linen-clad figure that uh, uh, Daniel first sees. We find out in ch chapter 12 that he's above the, above the waters. Uh, so there's a there's a kind of spirit above the waters image that's uh, there that bring another another hint of the creation setting. I, I think the the interplay of touch and speech here is interesting. Uh, Daniel gets touched three different times. He's touched when he's on the ground, and then he's able to get up to his hands and knees. He doesn't stand up until he's also spoken to, and then he stands up and he's strengthened. Then he seems to collapse again because of some of the things that the angel's been saying to him. Uh, and uh, he's touched again. He receives strength. And then he's touched a third time. Uh, and then at that point, it sounds like, it seems like the, uh, the, the climax is of, with a third touch in verse 18 is that Daniel is able to receive the word of the angel in order to report it. So he's touched, spoken to, initially this, the, the word's, make him collapse to the ground, then he's touched, he comes up partway, and then he's brought up standing by words. He begins to collapse again, he's touched and spoken to again, he stands up stronger. stronger. The final touch is uh, gives him the ability to hear. The second touch is on his lips, the third touch doesn't say where, but it says it strengthens him. And then verse 19, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So, um, it sounds like he's prepared to receive and then deliver the prophetic word after that final touch. And that, that interplay of touching and, and speech, I think, is, is intriguing. The other thing I wanted to highlight was the, the fact that um, 
so I think James pointed out uh, that there's this delay in the appearance of the angel, even though the prayer has been answered at the beginning. When Daniel, Daniel begins to fast and pray toward the beginning of this first month, but it's not until three weeks later that the angel appears to him and he knows that his prayer has been answered, but it's actually been answered prior to that. So again, there's a, we talked a little bit last time about the, the import that this might have for delays in, and what apparent delays in answers to prayer. And here, here there's not a delay in the answer to prayer. There's just a, a delay in the, in the outworking of that answer. There's a delay in Daniel becoming aware that the prayer has been answered, but the, prayer has been answered immediately. And uh, that's, again, should be reassuring to us when we think that God doesn't hear us. It, it can be the case that God hears and the answer is already unfolding, and but we don't know it until later on. But the answer was actually given earlier. I also wonder whether we're supposed to see Daniel's continued prayer and fasting as a participation in the struggle of the 21 days whether that is a means by which he was in some sense participating in that battle um, that is fulfilling the divine plan. One thing we could think about is just the level of detail here. I mean, whereas previously in the book, we've had just general pictures about large empires. Here in chapter 11, we're going to really zoom in and talk about individual kings and how they interact. And so we're getting a, a real zoom in on, on how the big picture of chapters seven and two perhaps is, is actually enacted on the earth. And parallel with it, we're getting all this detail about the angelic realm, which is quite remarkable. And it, it's one of these things where at first, at first blush, you might see it and think, well, that detracts from the importance of what's going on the earth, on the earth once we hear about all these heavenly principalities and, and battles. But it's precisely the earth over which they're fighting, isn't it? They're, they're dealing with the kings of Persia and how those, king, those kings are going to affect um, Israel. And that strikes me as just really driving home the kind of earth-centric view of Scripture. You know, it's here on earth that man fell. It's, it's here on earth that God intends to redeem creation. It's here that Jesus became incarnate and, and died and, and rose again. And I think there's just a, a lot to that, that this earth is, I suppose, the the battleground of these heavenly principalities. And as a result, it, it makes our lives hugely significant, I think. God wants us to be men and women who follow him in the midst of a, a fallen world and publicly glorify him, you know, before man and before the angels and before other principalities. And, and I think that's a large part of what's going on here thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from theopolis you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com we release new articles every tuesday and thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those you can also find us on twitter at underscore theopolis and on facebook if you just search for our name if you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>